Amen. Here in just a few minutes, we're going to be um, in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we'll be focusing in this morning on verses 19 through 21. So we'll be finishing out uh, 2 Peter, chapter 1 uh, this week. And so if, you're, if you have your Bible or you're using the Bible app or whatever it is that you're you're using to follow along, you can do that, and we'll have it up here on the screen when you read it as well. But uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. I want to talk to you this morning about God's Word being our firm foundation. We touched on that a little bit last week, and this week Peter kind of gives us the, the grand finale of, of the whole point of, of God's Word being uh, what we guide our lives by and what, what we're supposed to live by. On June 27, 1819, Adonai Judson baptized his first convert in Burma. His wife, Anne Hasseltine, described how Mong Nao had responded to the scriptures. A few days ago, I was reading with him Christ's Sermon on the Mount. He was deeply impressed and unusually solemn. These words, said he, take hold on my liver. They make me tremble. God spoke through Isaiah the prophet 2,700 years ago and said, This is the man to whom I will look. He that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Isaiah 66 verses 2 and 5. 2,000 years, the Bible, or over 2,000 years, the Bible has been taking hold of people's livers and making them tremble, first with fear because it reveals the sin that is in our hearts and in our lives, then with faith because it reveals that we have this wonderful, amazing God who pours out his grace on us. A single verse in Romans chapter 13, verse 13, convicted and converted the immoral Augustine. For Martin Luther, who was a miserable monk, the light broke through in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. This is what Luther said. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the, injustice, or that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. For Jonathan Edwards, it was 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Edwards says, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words from 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And as I read these words, there came into my soul a sense of glory of the divine being, uh, a new life. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. From century to century, from Egypt to Germany, from New England, the Bible has been drawing people to Christ. It makes people new. As Christians, we build our lives and we stake our eternity on the truth of God's word. 
But how do you know it's true? How can we be sure that the Bible that we have is not just some collection of writings from a bunch of Jewish guys who lived thousands of years ago? How do we really know that the Bible is true? Even Christians have all these different ways of interpreting the Bible. How do we know that our interpretation of the Bible is correct? There are evangelical Christians who say that we can't know the exact meaning of Scripture. They would say that if you claim to know what the Bible says, then you are dogmatic and you are arrogant. To claim that your views are the only right view is just being divisive. Are these people correct? Are they right when they claim that? Can we really know for sure what the Bible says and that it's true? That we are correct in our understanding of it? How do we know? Peter is about to die. He wants to leave his readers with a solid foundation. That solid foundation is revealed in the Word of God. The central focus of all of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in verses 16 through 18, Peter boldly proclaims that the apostles were not following these cleverly devised tales that were just made up fairy tales. But they were following the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his coming. Instead, they, they, they're eyewitnesses of this mount of transfiguration where they saw Jesus' majesty and his glory. We now have this apostolic witness in the New Testament. Peter is now going to expound that in our text this morning. And so if you're willing and able, I'd ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word, as we read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Oh God, I pray that you would use me to proclaim it in a way that penetrate hearts and lives. God, reveal in our hearts and in our lives where we are not following your word. <clears throat> Convict us. Break us. So that we would be followers of your word. Speak to us this morning. For your saints are listening, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What I believe Peter is telling us in these verses is that the apostles' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration confirmed and clarified the truth of the Old Testament. That the Messiah would come again to judge the world and to reign in glory over his redeemed people. Therefore, we have to pay attention 
to that word as a lamp that's shining in the dark until Christ returns. We must also be careful to interpret God's word correctly because this isn't just the word of man, but rather it's the inspired word of God. So therefore, since God's inspired word is our firm foundation, we must pay careful attention to it and interpret it correctly. First thing I want us to see this morning is this. Our foundation is God's word. Our foundation is God's word. Verse 19 begins with the word and, and so we're not uh, only have the apostolic witness to Jesus as they saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we looked at last week, but we also have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, it says. The word we first refers to the apostles and says we have this prophetic word, and by extension of the apostles, it refers to to the church. In the context of the Lord's coming from verse 16, the prophetic word refers to the Old Testament prophecies, referring to the day of the Lord, which was the day of judgment and salvation. And by extension, this is an application to all of the Old Testament since the scriptures are tied together. The idea is that the Old Testament prophecies that were about the coming day of the Lord are then uh, confirmed and clarified at the Mount of Transfiguration or by the Transfiguration of Jesus, where the disciples got to see this prophetic preview of Jesus in his glory. But what does Peter mean when he says more fully confirmed? Some follow the King James Version, which translates this. Uh, we have also a more sure word of prophecy and the idea being that the, the written word is more sure than the disciples' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. For example, that's what John MacArthur says in his study Bible. He argues that the Greek word order favors the King James translation. And so he thinks that Peter is saying um, that the scripture ranks even above his experience of seeing Jesus Christ transfigured on the mountain. And so he states the, the, the word of God is a more reliable verification of the teachings about the person, atonement, and second coming of Christ than even genuine firsthand experience of the apostles themselves. I have great respect for John MacArthur, but I don't agree with him on everything, and this is one of those areas where I don't agree with him. In fact, I would have to agree more with what Thomas Schreiner says because he argues it like this. This would subvert the argument, verses 16 through 18, for Peter then would have suggested that this appeal on transfiguration is not quite convincing. And so he needed something better, namely the Old Testament scriptures. But verses 16 through 18 demonstrate that Peter believed that the transfiguration was decisive proof of his view, not a questionable proof in the least. So it would seem that the, the preferable understanding would be that Peter is saying the Old Testament prophets gave us a sure word about Jesus. They predicted his sufferings and the glory that would follow. However, the apostles didn't understand how it would all fit together. They didn't, they didn't know how all of this stuff was going to fit and make sense. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was then that Jesus explained to them how it was necessary for him to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. And the three disciples 
then that were on the Mount of Transfiguration recalled their experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. We're seeing Jesus' glory was this prophetic glimpse of what was to come. And so in this sense, the Old Testament prophetic word made more sure is what the NASB says, or was morally confirmed is what the ESV says, or more fully confirmed. The transfiguration confirmed and clarified the truth that was already there, but which they didn't understand. They didn't get it completely until after the experience. Well, before moving on from this point, I think it would do us some good to consider just a few prophetic scriptures in regard to Jesus. It has been noted that there are over 300 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. But here are just a, a, a few of those prophecies. One, the Messiah would be born a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. He'd be a, of the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7.16. Be in the city of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. His ministry would be introduced by a forerunner who would speak in the spirit and power of Elijah, Malachi 3.1. Malachi 4, 5, Isaiah 40, 3 and 5. This was fulfilled, of course, in John the Baptist. Other prophecies speak of his ministry. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. They speak of his miracles. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the foal of his donkey. Zechariah 9, 9. Psalm 22, which was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even known as a means of execution, describes his death on a cross. The psalm also describes the taunts of the accusers and the soldiers casting lots for his garments. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And it mentions specifically in verse 9 that his grave would be assigned with wicked men, yet he would be with a rich man in his death. And as you know, Jesus was crucified between two criminals, but buried in the tomb of a rich man. All of the prophecies and all of these prophecies and many more all through scripture were specifically fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, Several years ago, there was a math professor who wrote a little book called The Science Speaks. In that book, Peter Stoner gives a probability to a number of biblical prophecies, and then he calculates the odds that these things could have happened by mere chance. In one of the chapters, he takes eight prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, and he uses very conservative estimates to determine the probability that it was that anyone with, that has lived from the time of the prophecies down to the present could have fulfilled eight of those prophecies. His answer was one in 10 to the 17th power. How big is that number? Well, Professor Stoner gives us an illustration. Take 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the entire state two feet deep. Now take and mark one of those silver dollars, stir that silver dollar into the mix. Then blindfold someone, tell them they can go as far as they want, but they must pick only one silver dollar. Their chances of picking the marked silver dollar are the same that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies and having them come true of one man. He goes on to take 16 prophecies and the odds increase to one in 10 to the 45th power, an unimaginably huge number. 
This would involve a ball of silver dollars extending 30 times as far as from the earth to the sun. And that's just 16 prophecies, not the 300 that Jesus fulfilled. Do you understand what I'm saying? The odds of Jesus fulfilling all of the prophecies that are written about Jesus in the word of God are astronomical. It can only happen one way. Divine inspiration. And this is why God's word is our foundation. Peter's first point is that this solid foundation of the prophetic word, which is more fully confirmed by the experience of seeing Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, that we have God's word, inspired word of God. Secondly, notice this. We must pay careful attention to God's word. Judgment day is coming. We must pay careful attention to God's word. Judgment day is coming. Just look at how Peter continues, verse 19. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so here's the flow of thought. Since the Old Testament prophets predicted the power and the glory of Jesus Christ in his coming, and since our experience on the Mount of Transfiguration confirms these prophecies that we, that, that we know are true, pay close attention to the Bible. Pay, pay close attention to Scripture. Peter compares the Bible to a lamp that's shining in the darkness. That should remind us of Psalm 119, 105. And that song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's interesting because here in verse 19, we have the only New Testament use of the Greek word for dark. And it has this connotation of not only being dark, but also dirty or soiled. And if we're going to navigate this dark and dirty world safely, then the idea is that we need God's word in order to navigate the world. You know, when I think of darkness and dirtiness, I think of a coal mine. Not that I've ever been down in a coal mine or anything like that, but... But I did live in Pennsylvania for a while, and that, that substitutes. Now, I'm not saying Pennsylvania is dirty like a coal mine. I'm just saying there's a lot of coal mines there. And so I'm familiar with them just a little bit. And the deeper you go, the darker it gets. And if you've ever watched anything about a coal mine, documentaries, movies, whatever, you know it's pretty dirty down there. The Bible says the world that you and I live in is just like that. It's dark and dirty. The world is a morally dark place. There are so many hazards everywhere we turn because of the darkness. And, and we're in danger. However, when we come to know Christ, the Bible becomes our light to show us how to live, to please God in view of his coming so that we can avoid temptation and sin. The day is dawning as a reference to the second coming of Christ. That, that end time is called the day of the Lord for believers. This would be a day of gladness and hope because our redemption draws near. But for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, it will be a time of terror and awful regret. But look what Peter says, right? Peter writes, the coming or the morning star rises in your hearts. What does that mean? What's he even talking about? It's also a reference to the coming of Christ, who is a bright morning star. But what does it mean that the morning star rises in your hearts? Some people might think that this means that the second coming is this inward 
subjective experience that happens to believers' hearts and not this outwardly visible event. However, that can't be true because Peter clearly believed in the objective bodily and personal return of Jesus Christ. So what he probably means here is that now in the darkness, the prophetic word shines to illuminate our path, but when Jesus, the morning star, returns, we will have the light of his presence so that we will no longer need the prophetic word to light our path. The one of whom the prophecies has spoken will be with us personally, shining fully in our hearts. In his commentary, Peter David writes this, One treasures a love letter while the beloved is absent. But once he or she is present, the letter is laid aside and exchanged for the personal contact. Before moving on, let me bring verse 19 to some application. Here's my question to you this morning. Are you paying attention to the lamp that is shining in the darkness? Are you regularly reading God's word to gain the light that you need to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord? Are you living in light of his coming when we all stand before him and give an account of how we have lived? Our foundation is God's word, but we have to pay attention to it. Because judgment day is coming thirdly, we notice this. We must correctly interpret God's word because it's not the word of man. We must correctly interpret God's word because it's not the word of man. Now, just in case you're using a different translation, some translations start verse 20 with the word but. However, that is not the sense of the original language as verse 20 is a continuation of verse 19. And so it was that we, uh, as we read in the ESV, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter is explaining that we need to pay close attention to the Word of God by interpreting it correctly because we're dealing with the inspired Word of God. And this inspired Word is given to us through human authors, yes, but it's God's Word. So I want to break this down into two subpoints real quick for us this morning. One, we must correctly interpret God's word. We must correctly interpret God's word. Now, interestingly enough, uh, to this idea that we must correctly interpret God's word, we have some interpretive issues in verse 20. Because the verse has been interpreted in three main ways. So I want to, I want to look at those uh, real quick this morning with you so we know what these ways are. First, we have the first way that it's been interpreted, which is the Roman Catholic Church's view. They use verse 20 to teach that individuals are not permitted to interpret the Bible for themselves. So they say that everyone is dependent on the official teaching of the church. And so as you can imagine, the practical results of this end up being that many Roman Catholics have never really studied or read their Bible to know what it really says because they're dependent upon the church to tell them what it says. And for several years, the church opposed translating the Bible into common language at all because they feared that the people would misinterpret the Bible. So we can't have it in common language because you might take the Bible and misinterpret it. And so the Catholics were dependent upon the priests to correctly interpret the word for them so that they knew what the Bible meant. Let me just say that this view reads all kinds of things into that verse, into that passage of, of Scripture that 
are not there. The main question is this. Is the church over the word? Or is the word over the church? That's the question. And how you answer that question has grave consequences. Is the church over the word? Or the word over the church? Yes. Secondly, some understand the verse to be referring not to interpretation of scripture, but to the origin of scripture. So the AIV 1987 gives an interpretive translation. It says, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Against this view, uh, that, uh, that it, again, this view is a reference to the origin. It's the meaning of the word interpretation, which only occurs here in the New Testament. And it means to untie a knot or solve a puzzle. So it more than likely refers to the proper interpretation of prophecy after it was given and not to the origin of the prophecy. There is a third view. Peter is saying that we aren't free to interpret scripture according to our own personal whims. We can't just interpret it however we want to interpret it. And what this means is that scripture is not interpreted subjectively. According to my feeling or according to my preference, but rather scripture is interpreted objectively according to what it actually means. So if we interpret scripture according to subjective feelings, then what's going to happen? We'll take the scripture, we'll twist it to suit our own need, which is precisely what the false teachers were doing. Scripture is the truth of God's word. That's what the scripture is. And we should be asking ourselves, with this truth of God's word, as a church and as individuals, do I line up with the scripture? We use the scripture to guide what we do and how we live our lives. We say, do I line up with the scripture? I don't go to the scripture to make the scripture line up with me. But do I line up with the scripture? We don't live our lives and do things as a church and then go to the scripture in order to prove what we're doing or how we're living. This is subjective. That will cause you to interpret scripture based upon feeling and cause you to twist the scripture to suit yourself. And that will always be wrong. As a, as a pastor, this is so crucial to me. And it should be crucial to you as well. We shouldn't be doing things because it's what we want to do. Or because it's what we've always done. Or because it was, it's what makes me feel good. We should be doing things because they are biblically based and backed up by the word of God. This is what happens when we base things on our subjective feelings. The truth is hidden. And so while Peter could be referring to the origin of Scripture because of his view of false teachers, I think it's likely that he's speaking about the third view, which I just went over. Now notice how Peter makes it a priority. What does he say? He writes this, knowing this first. And this is vital. Because if Christ is coming again in judgment, and his word is the standard for that judgment, we better understand it. You know, if you were out here zooming down the road past the church and you're doing 100 miles an hour out here, it won't do you any good to go before the judge and say, well, judge, 
uh, I didn't understand that sign that said 35 on it. It will all also do equally do you no good to ask the judge, well, well, judge, what does 35 miles per hour mean to you? <laughs> For me, 100 feels like 35. <laughs> and, and, and we say, well, that sounds ridiculous. Why? Because 35 miles per hour is not a subjective feeling. It's an objective standard by which anyone can be judged. And I don't have time to go into all the principles of biblical interpretation with you this morning, but I'll mention a few important things. First, we must always keep the text in context. Don't pull verses out of context. Second, the Bible interprets itself, especially individual authors. They interpret themselves. Do not try to use one author to interpret another author. Let that author interpret themselves. Third, we must interpret scripture based upon grammatical, linguistic, and historical considerations. Words mean things. And languages put words together in a structured way. So we must seek to determine what the text means to the original author and, and the audience and their historical setting before we can ask how this applies to our culture. I believe Peter's point is that we are not free to interpret the word in any way that we so please to interpret the word. And there's a reason for that. And he gives it in verse 21. Because this word, whether it's on your, in your paper Bible, or on your iPad, or on your iPhone, or on your, I left out Google, on your Google, whatever. It's his word. It's God's word. This word is not our word, but it's God's inspired word. Peter continues on in verse 21. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When I was taking notes on this passage of scripture, I wrote above that part where it says, the will of man, I wrote counterpoint. And after Peter says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, I wrote point. <coughs> Point because that's the point. That's the whole point of what Peter is saying. The idea is that you're not free to interpret the Bible according to your feelings. We do not get to take part of part of it and leave other parts of it out because we don't like that part of it. The Bible, uh, the Bible is what we carry around on and on paper, or on our cell phones, or on our computers, or wherever. All kinds of these other places. I took account just in my office, not counting commentaries and New Testaments. I have. At least 11 Bibles down in my office. Listen, this is, this is the very word of God. It's written to us through inspired men. It doesn't carry man's authority, but it carries God's authority. And God's wisdom for how you and I should live our lives in all things. It is the word of the sovereign of the universe to whom one day you and I will stand in front of and we will give an account. So we better take care and understand it correctly and obey it completely. It will do us no good to stand in front of God in our arrogance and try to make appeals that we trusted in our schemes or our brain or our mind or our whatever instead of God's word. You're not going to be able to stay, stand in front of God and say, well, God, I just didn't trust your word. Didn't trust it. Because that's what it boils down to, right? When you and I refuse to live our lives based upon the word of God, it boils down to pride. 
It boils down to me saying, God, I don't trust you. I know you're the sovereign God of the universe, but I just don't trust you. I don't trust this word that you gave to me. God, I know better than you. And what you've written down doesn't matter. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do things the way I want. Is what's worse is then when we're challenged in the way we're doing things, that something may not be biblical, we do our best to defend it. Not from scripture, but from our own mind. And so when someone challenges, I don't know if that, that's what we should be doing, or I don't know if that's what you should be doing, or whatever. We can't defend it with God's word, because God's word's not backing up what we're doing, so we just try to defend it with our mind. Do we understand that's exactly what happens in Matthew 7? We have this great appeal, right? Verse 21 in Matthew 7. These people have all called on the name of the Lord. But they've not done the will of the Father. And they think that they're believers. And in their pride and arrogance, what do they do? They say to God, God, look at all this stuff we've done in your name, God. God, we've prophesied and we've cast out demons and we've done all these mighty, wonderful works and we've done it all in your name, Lord. What's he say? I never knew you. Depart from you, workers of iniquity. It's the scariest verse in all the Bible. Because these people think they're believers. Probably go to church, sit in a pew, and think that they're doing what God wants. But they're doing their own thing. And God says, I don't even know you. I plead with you, church, this is God's word. Everything we do as a church, everything you do in your life has to be based on God's word. Why? Because it is worth it. Verse 21 is one of the key verses in explaining the inspiration of scripture. It shows that the scripture comes to us through human authors but it's not made up. Instead, they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. The verb that is used is often uh, is of the one that's uh, carrying along. It's the same verb that's used of Paul's ship. In the storm at sea, Charles Hodge says in his systematic theology, gives us an example and uh, an excellent explanation for us. He says, here's, uh, here's what he says. Inspiration was an influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men which rendered them the organs of God for the infallible communication of his mind and his will. They were, in such a sense, the organs of God that what they said, God said. And while certain portions of Scripture were dictated directly by God, in most places he used the personalities and the experiences of the authors to shape their language and message. But the final product that we hold in our hands, 
the, the, the final product that you have that you carry around on your cell phone or whatever it is. As Hodge puts it, what they said, God said. You have God's word. In the Old Testament alone, the writers refer to their writing as the word of God over 3,800 times. God's word. It's our firm foundation. In closing, I close with this. Have you ever watched footage of an implosion? It's a, it's a fascinating thing. I'm obviously no engineer, but engineers put dynamite in strategic places to blow up the foundation of a building to bring it down exactly how they want. And it's fascinating. And when it goes wrong, it's, it's kind of crazy, but we're not talking about it. It's just fascinating how they do that. Now, you might be wondering, well, what's that got to do with this message? What I want us to understand is Satan is relentlessly tries to get us to implode in attempting to blow up our foundation, which is the Word of God. The very first temptation that we find in Scripture of Eve was this. Did God actually say did God actually say? And he's used the same tactic ever since. He will use liberal theologians who undermine the integrity of Scripture. He will use high, higher learning institutions. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were all founded to train men in the Word of God. They're now dominated by skeptics who sneer at God's Word. He will use evolution, which is against all reason, and accepted as fact in our public educational system. And it does away with the need to submit to the Almighty Creator. Satan will even use our own minds to try to get us to think that we know better than God. And that we don't need to run our lives by God's standards. We just need to run our lives however we want. Yet in spite of the attacks, the Word of God endures forever. It gives us a solid foundation on which we build our lives and stake our eternity. Have you done that this morning? Have you staked your eternity on the Word of God? Perhaps you would say, well, how do I do that? Well, you do that by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. And you can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son and that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. Christ saves you by placing your trust in him. And if you said that prayer and he called you this morning, it's just your, your expression of trust. If you said that this morning, I'd love to follow up with you. Or you, you have questions, I'd love to follow up with you. You come forward at the end of the service. You can send a text message, 309-328-3488. Text the word um, a faith to that number. And it'll follow up with you if you have a smartphone. Call the church office, whatever you need to do. I'd love to follow up with you. Lastly, I want to ask you this. Are you paying attention to God's word? It's God's word. Are you studying it? Are you reading it? Are you interpreting it? Are you walking by the light that it gives? 
so you can avoid the pitfalls of this dark and dirty world. And then when the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your heart, you will be found rejoicing. Perhaps today, Christian, perhaps today, you need to repent. Say, God, I've not been trusting in your word. I've been trusting in mine. We're going to give you a chance to respond this morning. However you'd like to do that. Even if you're online, you can send a text message and I'll follow up with you. But we want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this word in which you teach us so much. Lord, I don't ever want to stand in a pulpit and proclaim my word. And so, Father, I pray that those times I've done so, that you'd forgive me. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. And Lord, there may be those this morning that have listened, or maybe they, they're going to listen to this next week or something. I don't know. But there may be those that hear this message that don't know you. And God, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. You'd bring conviction into their heart and life. They would repent, come to know Christ as their Savior. Speak to them. And then, Lord, I pray for those of us that aren't living by your word. God, would we examine our hearts and lives this morning? Would we ask ourselves this morning, is your word really that important to us? Are we living by your word or our own ideas? Lord, I'm fearful when I read that passage in Matthew. We think that we're doing the right thing. We have the wrong motivation. God, I pray for those that may be here this morning that they're not following God's word and they need to repent. They're doing their own thing and they need to repent. Oh Lord, would you bring conviction? May we be a church that always, always follows God's word. And if we can't, we don't do it. Speak to us. I pray that we'd respond and however you've led us to do so this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you, we sing, you'd be willing to come this morning.